Distressed businesses are not usually advisable acquisitions for the first-time business buyer. Well, today's guest flouted that convention and was rewarded for it. Ben Rizzo bought a fourth-generation, 90-year-old elevator servicing business in Pittsburgh. The business was in the red, but when Ben took a close look at it, he jumped. We spent time on how he got comfortable doing that, his analysis. It's a lesson in looking beyond the P&L and really reaching to understand the intrinsic value of a business. This interview is also a lesson in how to affect a successful turnaround. Ben shares in detail what was ailing the business and the cures he prescribed, how he quickly got the team on board for dramatic changes, how crucial the mutual trust between him and the seller was, how crucial recurring revenue was, and how just two years later, he not only stabilized, but doubled the business and found a buyer, resulting in a life-changing outcome. We also get into what Ben has done since, including diving in again as an owner-operator of another business in Pittsburgh, and potentially another in the months ahead, which would make him something of an accidental Holdco entrepreneur, because he was not an aspiring Holdco guy, and he speaks plainly about the pros and cons of that model. Lots and lots in this interview with Ben Rizzo, former owner of Hadfield Elevator. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. What do the following Acquiring Minds guests all have in common? Doug Johns, Morley Desai, Tim Erickson, Sharag Shaw, Shane Ursum. They all went through the Acquisition Lab, the accelerator and community for people serious about buying a business. But they represent just a sliver of the lab's success stories. The number of deals across the lab's cohorts now stands at over 120, with over $300 million in aggregate transaction value. The Acquisition Lab was founded by Walker Dybel, author of Buy Then Build, the book that introduced so many of you to the very idea of buying a business. The lab offers a month-long intensive, almost daily Q&A sessions with advisors, live deal reviews with Walker, deal team introductions, and an active community of serious searchers. Check out acquisitionlab.com, link in the notes, or email the lab's co-founder, Chelsea Wood, chelsea at buythenbuild.com. Ben Rizzo, welcome to Acquiring Minds. Thanks, Phil. Great to be here. Ben, a number of interesting aspects to your story. You bought an elevator servicing business, which will be fun to learn about. It was a business in distress, so you essentially acquired a turnaround as a first-time business buyer, and you succeeded in turning it around and exited a couple years later. So, And then the journey continues with another acquisition under your belt and then maybe another. So we're going to get into a lot of it, all of it. We got a lot of ground to cover. Let's hear some background from you first to get us going, Ben. Absolutely. So I, I started off as a chemical engineer. I did oil and gas engineering uh, for a few years, and, and the key experience that I had in that time was being out in the field, working with the men and women who were turning wrenches 
and understanding the difference of what was going on in the office versus what was actually going on in the field and different motivations and what people saw and uh, were trying to work towards there. Had a great experience in the middle of nowhere, uh, Pennsylvania, Texas, Oklahoma, and a little bit offshore as well. Went back to business school, learned about the search model, was very interested in you know small business and that type of stuff. Um, Ended up moving to Pittsburgh, which where uh, my wife is from, was very excited to, to live here. And I had worked here previously for Shell and uh, decided that I was going to try and find something to, to get into myself. And, you know, Pittsburgh is where I wanted to be and where I am currently, thankfully. And it was uh, a steady trickle of deal flow because I was so geographically restricted. And so I knew I had to kind of broaden my horizons of I got to find something. So I looked at some growth equity type things, traditional search investments, and eventually found, uh, as it was supposed to me, a company where something needed to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, through uh, a friend of a friend of a lawyer, um, I was introduced to a business called Hatfield Elevator, which is elevator service maintenance and repair here in Pittsburgh and also in Harrisburg. And they were on the brink of bankruptcy for, in my mind, all the right reasons. It was mismanaged. Uh, unfortunately, the guys. Uh, ben, it, uh, ben, let me stop you because we're yeah. we're going to slow down your story here a little bit. Okay. So when you f discovered search in your yeah. while in business school, what grabbed you? Uh, you know, I always always interested in entrepreneurship, but I never had any great ideas myself. And the opportunity to do entrepreneurship through, or you know, acquisition and entrepreneurship together was an ability for me to jump into something you know during business school i started a football helmet company that was a cool football idea helmets. yeah that was a cool idea that one of my my friends had and we you know had some traction there but it was really frustrating being nominally the business guy running the company working on a technical problem that you know my, the engineering team was working towards but we weren't weren't making progress so i really just wanted something that i could dig my teeth into and so entrepreneurship through acquisition uh you know, stuck out in my head is, Hey, I just get into something and then you're going. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, you know, when I moved back to Pittsburgh, um, that's what I set out to do. I didn't know exactly what it was going to look like. Like I said, I want to get into something and then be able to be entrepreneurial. And were, were you plugged into the ETA classes or cohorts at your business school? Yep. Yeah. So I took okay. a couple, a couple of the classes, you know, learned uh about some of the success stories went to some of the conferences and and just saw people out there doing their thing in a similar way that you see at some of the entrepreneurship conferences you know people have an idea and they go do something um eta was similarly you find something and then you bring ideas to it and go do something with it mm -hmm. great and then what shape was your shirts going to take? You've already told us that you wanted to be in Pittsburgh. So it was yeah. geographically constrained. Regular listeners know that that probably means one type of search, but give us more. Yeah. So it, it was, you know, self-funded or wife funded or unfunded, any combination of the above, <laughs> uh, all are true. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to do the traditional search of go find a million dollar EBITDA business, buy it for four times, you know, that was the ideal thing that I was looking for, but I also realized very quickly because of the geographic constraint that I had to broaden my horizons to in any sense of timeliness, find something good or reasonable to, to get in and go with that. There were only so many of those in the area that I wanted to be. And so I branded myself to the marketplace as a generalist investor of, 
you know, I'm looking for an opportunity to get into. Uh, and so I ended up uh, at some VC type pitches, some um, later stage startup type things that were going to tradition switch over to more of a private equity model anything and everything just to find deal flow and just understand who in the market that I was looking at what had access to deals. And um, the deal that I eventually bought, the, 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 the tree that got me there was uh, I met a guy whose dad does fractional CFO work involved in a lot of different small companies. I met his dad. His dad said, oh, you're a guy looking to do something. He invited me to an investment pitch for a startup. I went, I had no interest in this startup. I forget, I forget, it was like audio processing or something. I'm sure they did very well. Um, but I just networked the room and I met uh, a wealth manager. I said, I'm a guy looking to buy a business if you know anyone. And I met the patent lawyer for this tech startup. And I said, I'm a guy looking to buy a business. And he said, I don't do that, but let me introduce you to the guy at my firm who does. And a week or two later, we went to lunch and I said, I'm a guy looking to buy a business. And the guy looked at me and said, huh, you know, there's a business that I work with where something needs to happen. Let me see if mm -hmm. they want to talk to you. Mm -hmm. And that was you know, I, Elevator. I, I, I love this, Ben, because you were, you were putting yourself out there. I don't know if you use the word searcher or any of the kind of language that we're used to, you know, our inside baseball language. Yeah. Um, but it feels like you were more just like, I just want to, I want to get in. I want to get in a business. I want to buy a business, get in. And I'm just looking, I'm just looking to do, are you looking to do something is your phrase? Uh, yeah. It's pretty open-ended, Yeah, but, but, it, but it seems to have worked for you. The closest thing, the other deal that I was looking at was a, um, uh, you know, kind of call it a tech company that was a startup, but not not big VC startup. You know, small startup that had raised some money that needed needed a new new lifeblood, and you know they had some installations of their product, and they thought it could go to the next level. And the guys just didn't. The, the guy running it was ready to be done, and there's something there. So th those are the types of opportunities that I looked at. I was like, there's only so much in the area that I'm looking. Yeah. Um, I I want to find something to do. <laughs> Yeah. But it was always going to be some sort of you become owner, some version yes. of you becoming yeah, owner. Yeah, that was, mm -hmm. you know, I, I would talk to anyone about, oh, they want to bring me in to do this or whatever. But, you know, the goal was go, you know, like I said, the goal was traditional, you know, search fund model, go find something, buy it, own it, run it. Yeah. Uh, I just recognized that those levers may have had to look slightly different. And the lever I ended up pulling was I got to buy something, I got to go run it it was not a traditional million dollar EBITDA search business. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to hear about that in just a sec, but the, um, you know, one of the, one of the elements of your story that you just shared was how it was basically a lawyer who introduced you to Hadfield. Yeah. And you know, one of the things you'll hear in, in the tactics about search is network with your local accountants and lawyers. Yes. And, and I always, I'm not sure I, I'm probably wrong here, but I'm not sure I've actually had a guest do that and have it be what, what it ends up delivering the lead. And so I, I've developed a bit of a skepticism around the efficacy of that, mm -hmm. but it sure seems like it worked in your case. Do you, anything more to say about that tactic? I, uh, I promote it aggressively. I invest in search broadly. Uh, I think uh, you know, I've done 17 or something search investments across the country in the UK. I see deals get done one in the location where the searcher is usually 
uh, and then two, with people in market. I think some of that is changing post-COVID in that smaller investment banks are blasting deals to larger groups and private equity firms are looking at literally anything. But I will tell you of the, you know, the elevator business, the business I just bought and the business that I'm about to buy, all of them came through local intermediaries, a la accountants, lawyers type people. And even, even, even two of them to, um, not, not the elevator business, but the other two connections to the representative of the business, right? These are, you know, banked or brokered processes, but even getting into those processes came through, uh, in one case, an accountant, in one case, a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And th- this, um, this tactic that you are now a big proponent of, did you consciously kind of work the networks of accountants and lawyers or just in your broad network, you were talking to everybody going to everything in Pittsburgh. Yeah. You just, it happened to be that an accountant and a lawyer delivered leads to you. No, the, the thesis generally is if a business that I wanted to transact with is going to sell, someone is going to be involved, some sort of an intermediary. So obviously hit up the business brokers, the bankers, those groups. Um, but that was my, you know, the thought is, hey, there's all sorts of these other intermediaries, lawyers, accountants, wealth managers, that many of them I found do some deals. You know, it's, 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 not, um, it's not rare to find an accounting firm that, you know, they sell some deals for their customers. You know, there's a couple mm-hmm. of them here in Pittsburgh. And, and I think the other thing that I do caution people and I'm giving them that advice is it depends on what market you're in. Uh, a city like Pittsburgh is pretty manageable, to be honest, right? It doesn't take long to get to know, you know, the 15 to 20 firms in town that do middle market M&A in the type of thing that I'm in. Maybe it's more than that, but it doesn't take long to find out who's kind of moving and shaking around. If you're in New York or Dallas or San Francisco, there are probably thousands of them. And the principals at those firms have less time to answer every searcher call they get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that goes both ways, right? Of it's hard to meet them if you just randomly call them, but it's, it's easier to stand out if you meet them in person. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, am a big proponent of ACG and TMT. You know, those are association for corporate growth and tournament turnaround management, something, uh, those are groups where the intermediaries quite frankly gather and you can just show up, you, you, but you buy a ticket to the lunch and you sit down and, and have the, the lunch with, you know, it's usually retail bankers, commercial bankers, lawyers, accountants, all the people that are private equity type service providers. And most of them won't give you the time of day as a searcher <laughs> uh, because they do bigger deals or, you know, they don't work with that t- type of stuff. But that's, those are the types of firms that will have Oh, we've we've got this million dollar EBITDA business that we don't know, no, don't know what to do about. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got this opportunity where we don't want to run a full process, but you're in town, you're here. Why don't you meet the owner? That type yeah. of stuff. And I think those are those are really good, high quality interactions, much more so than sending out an email blast to ten thousand people around the country. Because you know, with the technology now, other searchers are also doing that, and private equity firms are too, right? Like like I mentioned, any sort of a process deal right now, you are likely competing against multiple private equity firms. 
So you have to stand out in some different way, either buy something that they're unwilling to buy or give on some term that they're unwilling to give uh, or you know, be someone that they're not. And searchers can do all those things. It just depends on what the right mix of those are in for an individual seller. And one of the other great points that you made to me offline was about accountants and lawyers is that their this their surface area of connections to companies is much broader than a, than a broker. I mean, brokers got yeah. the deals that they're working, and then they've of course they've got a pipeline. Mm-hmm. But you know, accountants and and lawyers presumably have dozens and hundreds of clients. So yeah. you know, only some small fraction of those might be for sale or contemplating sale. But it's still like the 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 you know. It, if you think of an accountant as a node in a network, mm-hmm. like they have many more connections coming out of them than say absolutely, broker. absolutely, and their motivations are different, right? Bankers and brokers are looking to sell businesses for the highest price, and so they look at a private equity firm and say, "You're probably going to pay the highest price, and you'll probably buy multiple businesses from me." Lawyers and accountants look at things differently because they they may be it may be a client of theirs, and they want to keep the business. And if mm. that business gets sold to some private equity firm in New York, they're probably not going to keep the business. Mm-hmm. If you local guy buys the business, probably going to keep the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I certainly try and do that with the inter- intermediaries around here, right? If you find me a deal, yeah, I'm going to keep your services. Most business buyers acquire their target company using an asset purchase, which means that you've got a brand new legal entity that needs to be ready on day one to properly employ your new team. Payroll, HR documents, tax accounts, workers' comp, benefit plans like medical and 401k. You need to make sure all of that is transferred or set up on day one. Aspen HR understands this challenge and the delicate timing that searchers have to juggle. Led by a successful former searcher, Mark Sinatra, Aspen HR can assist searchers to ensure a seamless transition for the employees. If you are structuring an asset purchase, contact Aspen HR for a free consultation. They'll walk you through their proprietary checklist for asset purchases that assesses your readiness for HR, payroll, and benefits. Check out AspenHR.com or contact Mark directly at mark at AspenHR.com. Now let's carry on with the story. So you are introduced to Hadfield. Yeah. Tell us about tell us about this business. So elevator service maintenance and repair business covering both Pittsburgh and Harrisburg, uh, a longtime family business that had run into financial troubles for a couple of reasons. One, the family was fourth generation family was great at fixing elevators, not great at running a business. And they kind of had the mindset of, if we just do great work, everything else will be fine. And that worked for a while, but not forever. The other big cataclysmic issue that they had was they got involved in a very large development where the real estate developer very publicly, um, you know, kind of had some issues and a lot of people did not get paid. They ran into huge financial difficulties around that because, you know, it was one of the situations, hey, this is great. This is our biggest project ever you know, we'll do whatever it takes to keep this person happy. You know, they went beyond where they should have, did not properly protect themselves as things were going wrong. And as a result of that, they were in, you know, seven figures of debt to the bank, the insurance company, the union. You know, they had just piled on everything to try and make this thing work. And so when the rug got pulled out from under them, they were in a terrible situation financially. And yet you, first timer, uh, think that, 
you can maybe, quote, do something here? Yeah. So what I saw in the business was, one, a great industry, right? Elevator service, maintenance, repair. Elevators aren't going anywhere. They have to be serviced. There's code restrictions. That, that was really exciting. The other aspect was the gold standard in search, contractual recurring revenue. Every month, elevators have to be maintained. Buildings pay, pay these companies to come in every month, make sure everything's fine, do some adjustments. So there was a base of um, monthly maintenance revenue, as they call it. And that was the thing that got me really excited was, hey, there's something here at the core that even if everything else is, is terrible, those contracts are worth something. And that was the kind of insight that I was able to, one, research and verify in the marketplace, talking to you know, industry-specific contacts, brokers, private equity firms. Hey, how do you value these companies? Some of, some of these companies are valued on EBITDA. Some of them are valued on monthly maintenance revenue. So that in my head, I could do the calculation. Hey, this, I think this company is worth more than the debt load, even though the debt load is sig significant. Um, and worst case scenario, where I can, if I get in there and I can't, you know, start making money, turn this thing around, I can sell the contracts and, you know, retain solvency. Uh, you know, I, I would obviously have sold the business at that point, but then, you know, not being on the dotted line for all the things that I'm signing off for from the family. That was how the deal got done was they had signed personally for all of those debts. And they didn't know what to do. They were, you know, th those groups were coming after them and said, hey, you got to pay us. Um, and that was my deal is, okay, I'll sign on the dotted line. I will take all of those liabilities from you personally. I will sign for them and I'll take all the debts. And that was essentially the deal. And I wrote them a small check. Um, and with the, the thought in my mind of, we can try and make this thing. And then I think that's why the family, you know, those, the family members who stayed, why they picked me was certainly they could have liquidated the business. They could have, you know, given up, sold the business, sold the contracts off to one of the major players you know, who would have then liquidated the business, fired everyone. Um, so I'm sure in the back of their minds, they knew that was a possibility with me, but I was the, the option that gave them an opportunity to continue. Right. And I this was, is a fourth, as you said, a fourth generation, fourth generation business. family business. So yeah. I assume there was kind of a sense of legacy and, and responsibility Absolutely. to the forebearers to keep keep the brand alive. Yeah. And the, the employees, right. There is um, 20 to 30 employees when I took over that, you know, that, that were around. They would have all lost their jobs had they liquidated that business. Um, and, and, and right. You and the principal, the family members would have lost the opportunity to continue. Right. It would have been, yeah, wipe out, wipe out these debts and wipe out the company, you know, versus, right. you know, I came in, convinced those creditors to give us some terms, renegotiated, brought some, uh, a new line of credit in to take out the existing one, um, and had the opportunity to keep going. And that's what we, we went to work on. Well, and, and so just to reiterate your own calculus, the, mm -hmm. the arithmetic is the, you went out into the market and talked to people in the know, what? Bank, bankers, private equity shops that are in the elevator servicing space? All of the above, yeah. And said, what are these, you know, contracts, what are, what are contracts worth? Because at, yeah. at, at root, that's this kind of asset that yeah. an elevator servicing business has. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you got, a, you got, a, you got some, some data from the market and came up with your own kind of valuation of what the assets of this business were worth in terms Correct. of these contracts. Yep. And then looked at the debt load and said, if it all goes to hell, 
the the value of these contracts is still more than the debt load. So you know, yes. I can I, I can still get out get out of this financially if 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 absolute worst case scenario. Pretty much, yeah. And I you know I applied some margin of safety there. It wasn't huge, but I you know the contracts were not bulletproof, but they were pretty good. And you know I talked to enough people that I knew there was private equity interest in the space. The major players, Otis Tischen, Schindler, Kones of the world are acquisitive. So like there's buyers for this company uh, mm -hmm. one way or another. And there are buyers for the contracts of this company because they're, you know, they've been around a long time. They've got a lo lot of loyal customers. That was it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. And, and so before we return to how you set about fixing things, tell sure. us a little bit more about Bob. The yeah. current owner, the fourth generation owner. This this relationship is important to the story. Yeah, super important. So Bob Hadfield, the fourth generation owner, was in his mid-30s at the time. And he had taken over uh, for his family running the business probably about five or 10 years before I showed up and had gone into growth mode. And you know, he was the one who had really built the business up and was really excited about the big projects. And and in my customer calls, you know, doing trying to understand, hey, there was this big project that went wrong. Was this the company that I'm buying? Was that this unique to them? Was this something that happens frequently? And the answer was no and no. The other customers loved this company that I bought. And a lot of very reputable people lost money in the bad situation. So like, okay, those things are, this is a really unique event. And the, the calls that I got about Bob were, this guy's great. No matter when I call him, he answers his phone and he immediately comes and fixes my elevator. The back so office. he's a technician himself. Yeah, he was. And that was the issue, right? He was so focused on delivering great, great service to his customers. He wasn't paying attention to overall running the business. And that's how he got himself into trouble. And he recognized that. And then, you know, he wanted to go to work fixing it and, and did with me. Uh, but the, that was the key relationship for me because I certainly needed him. He needed me to get out of the situation, but I needed him to fix the elevators. You know, we had obviously mm -hmm. many, many techs. Um, but he was the key guy of, he's going to keep go grinding. And so I, you know, g gave him an, a very rich, uh, incentive employment agreement. Cause he didn't get anything for the sale of your key employee. Let's go, go to work and really getting to know him of believing all of this story as a first time buyer, having no experience in the elevator industry. Oh yeah, we can fix this. Uh, and that just looked like me hanging out with Bob and some late nights with drinks of who are you? Who am I? Is this going to work? And, and I appreciate one of the things that he did uh, from from the, that first meeting was he said, look, I'm going to be honest with you about everything. It's not pretty, but it's better than you'd probably hear secondhand. And I know that if I try and gloss over something or don't tell you tr the truth about something that you're never going to trust me because he had been through a lot. Uh, and it was a very messy situation and to give him credit, he said, that's, that's how it's gotta be. And that's how it was, um, to this day of here's, here's the situation. Here's what happened. Here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. Here's what I think. Mm -hmm. And was there anything, do you think in, in his mind that yes, they're, they're interested, the family and in seeing the family name continue on in Pittsburgh as a, as an ongoing concern, but they're still losing ownership. Yeah. And so d was there any, do you think that there was any emotional tension there for him? Of Absolutely. Letting go of, of the business. Yeah. It's got I his mean, name on it. I think he, that was part of the reason, right, that he wanted the chance to keep going with me rather than selling to somebody who's mm -hmm. going to take apart the business. 
But certainly then when we decided to sell the business later, and we'll get to that, that was an emotional decision as well, as well of, hey, this is, you know, it's not just Ben anymore. It's somebody else that's not here. And, you know, he, he was excited that they were going to keep the name and keep building the business. And, but it's, it's a big letting go once taking that step of, hey, this is, this is the first step in the transition of a new, new life for this business. Yeah. And it doesn't, doesn't involve me being the owner. Yeah. Returning to the key person risk. So uh, it sounds like you really, you really address it in two ways. First of all, you had, so, so Bob is the kind of the best technician on the team or the head technician mm -hmm. on the team. Um, so there are others, but he's really the leader of the bunch and he's your liaison between yeah. the techs, I guess, and, yep. and your relative ignorance of how the, all this stuff works. Um, you got the, you kind of dealt with the, uh, the mechanical piece of keeping him in with mm -hmm. this, this generous incentive package, compensation mm -hmm. package. And then you dealt with the kind of trust piece of just getting to know him. You guys got to yeah. know each other, broke bread, drank beers. And, yeah. and so you felt, you felt like pretty good going in that you weren't going to lose your key person. And his, his name's on the business. So you, his you know the that there's yeah. this deep, as we keep returning to this deep seated incentive on his part to, to see things be successful in your hands. Yeah. And again, right. Even if he, you know, we signed the dotted line on our transaction, then he said, see you, Ben, joke's on you. I would have said, okay, and tried to make it work. And if I couldn't, I still had the contracts, right? The contracts right. were in the name of the business, not the name of the individual. Um, and then I, you know, we had a guy, uh, Rick in Harrisburg, who was running that office, got to know him as well. Um, that office was less tumultuous because it hadn't been involved in the projects. Uh, and so they were, they were excited as well to have some new support and, and, uh, growing the business as well. Well, Ben, you, you certainly are making a good case for why a first timer can have, you might, you know, have the chutzpah to go out <laughs> to buy a business in distress. Uh, you know, it, it certainly, it sure seems like there's ingredients here of, of a lasting business. So now turn us to how you actually imagine solving what, you know, the, these enormous problems. Yeah. Well, so one was get, getting rid of the bad customers, right? That was a, a, a big issue of, hey, they were involved with people who said a lot of great things, but never paid them. Those people are gone. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other thing was, right, they got them into, into that, those issues by having horrible bidding processes of just thinking any revenue is good revenue. You know, if there's money coming in, there's enough for payroll, you know, who cares about profit margins? Well, I do. And, you know, Bob learned to very quickly. And so understanding, just doing a relatively basic analysis, what are our costs per hour to deploy a guy with a truck and insurance and all that stuff versus what are we making on these various maintenance contracts or big, bigger modernization construction type jobs? Um, you know, in, instilling discipline of, hey, you can't just bid something low to get the work. That doesn't usually makes sense. Sometimes it can make sense if you've already got a crew there, you know, you, it's, it's additional revenue. You, you're not chasing revenue, you're chasing profits. Um, so instilling that and then, you know, ch understanding, okay, once you have good processes to put your guys set up, set themselves up for success, are you dealing with customers that are going to pay you? you know, the real estate world is filled with people who, you know, take the money, take the money and then, you know, won't give you the money. Um, 
it's it's just you know that's that's the aspect of the real estate world of you know they are levered to their eyeballs usually on these buildings they have tenants that are paying them and their their game is to hold on to money as as long as possible and and elevators are a huge expense i get that right like it's baseline of do the elevators work or not they break okay we have to fix it it's just an expense uh Mm -hmm. and so we are a, a pain to deal with from the real estate owners point of view of they're just throwing money at this thing to keep it alive and working usually, especially in older buildings. Just um, cost center. Just yeah, like it's a, cost a huge center. cost center. Um, and it's very expensive, right? Like that's one of the aspects of it. it was an attractive business for me of elevators are expensive to fix. They have to be fixed. There's code around them. Um, makes it good business for us, makes it a, you know, an annoyance for building owners. Yeah. yeah. Well, but then this piece about, you know, in the world of real estate, there's, there's chain reactions of, people not paying and, and mm-hmm. everybody on terms and there's a lot of leverage, you know, floating around. What did you elaborate on that? How did that impact your playbook? Yeah. Well, so, so one, it was reviewing our contracts to making sure our terms were correct. So the first thing I, relatively quickly I did was I got a real estate lawyer to draft a two page terms and conditions sheet that we attached to all new contracts going out the door of, yeah, here's what we're going to do. Here's what you're going to do for us. And, you know, that was like, here's the price. Here's what we cover. Here are the terms and conditions. Just be prepared. I signed a, a number um confession and judgment pieces where there were, there were customers that owed us a lot of money. They kept calling us. Okay, man, you want us to keep showing up? Sign on the dotted line. This, you know, paper that we, if you don't pay us, we're going to lean your building. Uh, that was the language that those guys, uh, knew to speak. And when they saw that we were organized, some of them backed away and some of them said, yep, we're going to pay you. And yes, we'll sign that. And generally they did because they knew I was going to lean their building if they didn't pay me. (laughs) And that was, you know, worst case scenario for them. So understanding kind of the, the engagements that we had with our different customer bases of who was an A plus customer, both in terms of did a lot of work with us and treated us well and paid us versus who pretended like they were a great customer because they gave us all this work, but then never actually paid us. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Uh, and we're always a pain. You need, you honestly, you needed some of both. Uh, I mean, you'd love to have all these great customers, but you want, you learn to deal with the customers that are um, more stingy by you know, treating them appropriately and having reasonable business relationships with them. Like I get it, right? They, they don't want to spend money there on things that they don't want to, and they're going to hold their money and they're going to go by what the, ter- the terms are. So you give them the terms and you know, mm-hmm. you learn to play by them. Mm-hmm. And did the business at all suffer from you tightening up the, the collections and tightening up expectations? And basically t- to put it kind of very bluntly, you were delivering less service for the same price or actually higher price than they were used to because Bob mm-hmm. had basically been over delivering. So when you deliver less service for a yeah. higher price, <laughs> maybe they maybe they start shopping you or you know lo- yeah. looking elsewhere. Did you experience any of that? We absolutely lost some customers, um, but those customers were generally ones that I was happy with because I knew that even if we were you know, being more stingy, uh, we were way better than the alternatives. Right? Mm-hmm. What we wanted to be was pay us a reasonable price and you'll get really good service. That was the other thing that I forgot to mention was as I looked at the elevator industry, the, the reference calls that I did to building owners and managers, everyone hated their elevator company. Absolutely hated. 
because it's a it's a cost center and it's a big cost center and because you're under contract with his elevator company it's not like you can just call somebody else you know you you'll get the the legal book thrown at you very quickly if you try and break contract because then you know nobody wants the liability of it we have that elevator under contract and you brought somebody else in to work on it like i don't know if it's safe what if god forbid what something happens so learning that everyone hated their elevator company it was a game of can i be the least hated elevator company i was like oh yeah we can do that <laughs> Um, right. So, but we wanted to be, the goal was uh, kind of where we found a good opportunity in the market was to be high quality service because that's what wasn't be done. And we we obviously had to be paid for that. Um, and we were, you know, being an independent, we were usually pretty price competitive, but we found a lot of customers that wanted to pay for good service. Industrial customers were a huge growth area for us because if you've got a, you know, going back to the kind of macro search dynamics that you look for okay random uh residential building the elevator is a high cost for them you're a manufacturing plant the elevator in a manufacturing plant is not a high cost for them and it is a very high value thing for them if it goes wrong we did a we we you know built up a huge business in industrial manufacturing type businesses where they just wanted us to show up quickly. They didn't care what it cost. You know, I had a Fortune 50 company call my cell phone one day. I said, hey, are you you with an elevator company? I'm like, yeah. Like, oh, this other gigantic company across the street said you actually show up. We can't get anybody to show up. Um, what does it take to get you over here? And we went through you know many days of talking about things. They didn't ask about price. They didn't care. They just wanted us to, like, how can we get you quickly approved through our you know, huge vendor program, like, get you in here to take care of this thing that is costing us huge downtime in this pr- production plant. And so that was, that was the other shift in the customer base that we had a lot of residential commercial buildings um, that were reasonable customers, but understanding who really wanted to pay for good service and a premium for that was another aspect of growth for us. Mm-hmm. Well, Ben, one one follow up on that. You know, when I will hear a lot in in our world about you know it, it's straightforward to make a business like this successful because so often your competitors aren't picking up the phone, sort of thing. Bad mm-hmm. service everywhere. Just deliver good service. Mm-hmm. And I'm a little skeptical of how kind of pat that explanation is because I just I just assume. I, you know, I, I give the benefit of the doubt to any service provider, and if they're if they're they're delivering uh, bad service, particularly mm-hmm. if it, it, it appears to be yeah. endemic across the industry, that it's th- there's an economic reason for it. That maybe you know these uh, your comp- your competitors, the other elevator service companies, weren't delivering good service because it's just not economically viable for them to do so. Yeah, and so it's it, so it's it's not so it's not like there's this. It's not always like I'm skeptical that there's just like oh, there's this giant opening, just do a better job than the competitors. Well, maybe the competitors aren't doing a good job for some good underlying economic reason that's going to be intrinsic to your business as well. Yeah, and I I think part of it is um, in a tight labor market, uh, it's hard to get, I guess guess elevator guys are very expensive regardless, regardless of the labor market. And the other aspect is that you know, they're running around to devoting their time to multiple things. So where the big companies kind of make their money is they spread one guy over a bunch of things. And that's where you, the service levels drop because you can add, add units to a route. 
where, where we found, and I guess the good, the good customers for the big companies that get good service have a devoted guy. So if you've got a, a big skyscraper, there's probably an elevator guy there full time. Hmm. And so you're paying a lot for that, but you're getting good service because the guy's there, hopefully. Uh, I've heard many stories where the guy is not actually there, but you're paying for a guy there. I think where we found success was the specific market segment of pretty big customers that wanted good service, but weren't big enough to have a full-time technician. And so they, you know, in the bigger company's mind where they're playing the game of, hey, we're going to take a, a, a one elevator guy and give him a bunch of units to service on a route way more than they're actually going to hit in a month. And we did some of that too, of how much, right, how much can we load up a guy and provide reasonable service? Um, there's the other segment of, hey, we're going to take a lot of your time, but it's not going to be the full-time job for any individual. It's going to be, hey, we need repairs and we need somebody here now. Get somebody there quickly. And I think that's where there's maybe a, um, this market has the, the niche of, uh, pretty big customers with high willingness to pay where it makes sense for us to provide good service to them. Random commercial building or residential building who's screaming about good service. You know, we had the same incentives as the big companies because we wanted to spread our guys, uh, you know, to as many sites as possible such that we could provide enough service, but the economics were the same of, the more the more work we gave to the individual guy, the better our our, our economics were, and, then, and I think that's where the the trade offs are. Okay, Ben. Well, actually, one thing we haven't uh, asked, which I need to before to my next big question about how you dealt with this burdensome debt, is give give us more about the business. You said it's twenty to thirty employees. Of course, fourth mm -hmm. generation. We talked about how that that it's a legacy, multi generational business, but in healthier times. What does revenue and margin look like? Uh, so revenue was, you know, upper seven figures of revenue. And uh, I actually don't know what industry standard margins were because I don't think I ever achieved them. <laughs> uh, you know, it, when I bought it, it was not profitable. They were losing right. money. Uh, but I think, you know, like a good service business, shooting for 20 to 30% margins is pretty reasonable. Okay. Because you're talking about how expensive your services are, but I guess your yeah. own costs and, and hiring people, you're also yeah, it's, you're also it's, paying a premium to our your technicians. services. Exactly, our services are expensive, partially because you know the the industry is very unionized. The guys are skilled technicians. Like you want someone who knows what they're doing servicing your elevator. They t have taken a lot of that value, so our costs are also very high. Mm -hmm. And so upper seven figures, so it's si you know sizable business. Um, the, you said it was not profitable. Now it was not profitable be because of the, these onerous debts or it wouldn't have been profitable even without those debts. Ah, uh, I, it wasn't Don't profitable, know. but it's hard to know exactly <laughs> yeah, what the, yeah. the combination of things, why that it was losing money. Um, but they were, you know, they had lost money for, you know, a while and they were kind of running on shoestrings. They had never achieved industry standard margins as far as I could see. Um, partially because, you know, they were in growth mode of taking on whatever they could. And then there was the aspect of they had this huge project that blew up on them and it was so big, it was hard to parse out exactly how much of that blame should be put on that versus, oh, the ever, everything else is just not being run well either. Mm -hmm. But you saw looking at the industry, 
in the you know if you squinted there was the there was the possibility here of a business that did call it eight nine million dollars twenty to thirty percent margins yep so so that's what's my math there uh, about you know 1.6 1.8 million in EBITDA maybe yeah. at some, yeah, some that, point. that's was kind of my calculus is if in a good world this looks like a good search business business of a couple yeah. million in EBITDA uh, you know a, a nice size where I can get my head around it you know, if I can, if I can make it become that it will be very valuable to all these people that are out buying these things. It's big enough. Yeah. Um, but it was just not quite that yet. Okay. Now let's turn to, we've talked about how you optimized money coming in these, all these debts and, and the money yeah. going out. How did you address all of that? Make the business profitable and be able to service debts. Uh, so I think, you know, having uh cutting down costs immediately right we they had before i showed up they had gone through some layoffs of just right sizing the amount of manpower to service the existing business and then uh getting rid of customers that weren't paying we started being able to be a cash flow positive business within about three months of me showing up um and it took some finagling to get some terms on uh well, I guess separate from debt service, you know, getting in there and getting the guys, you know, used to not just doing everything, getting them used to turning in their timesheets so we could allocate costs to different customers and do the analysis of who's a good customer. Um, you know, making sure that they were billing their time correctly so that then we could bill their time correctly. That was a huge missed opportunity for you know, that they were currently doing of just writing down hours and not billing them out to customers. So you know, some some things are covered during a maintenance visit, some things are not. How much you can bill for is part of the the you know, kind of st strategy in the game you play with your customers of, you've got a contract, there are things that are outside your contract that we're gonna bill you for. What mm -hmm. does that look like? Because they're always gonna say everything's covered and we're gonna say nothing's covered, mm -hmm. that give and take. And was the, was the business meeting its debt obligations before you got in there? There were, it was not term debt. It was just, uh, you know, you, they owed money to the insurance company, the bank, uh, and the union, and there were not exact. You know, we, I essentially came in and negotiated payment plans. You know, gotcha. we got, I yeah. brought, I brought, I signed personally for a new line of credit. You know, I didn't do an SBA loan because there were no earnings. I signed personally for uh, a line of credit that you know, was able to take out the other line of credit and give us a little bit of working capital. And then I negotiated payment plans with uh, the union and the insurance company. Mm -hmm. And so, but th those new payment plans means that there's, talk about a J curve. That means that there's new costs when Ben gets in there, because I guess before they had these giant debt, these big debts that they owed, but they just weren't paying them down. But now right. that they start paying them down, there's, you know, there's three new expense lines. Yeah. One, one debt service to each of these three entities that you, you owe debt to. So, um, but that was covered by the, 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 yeah, the, you know, the income uh, and revenue optimizations you were making. Yeah. I put in everything I could from, you know, the, the new working capital line, um, to give us some buffer. And then, mm -hmm. um, yeah, we started, started making money pretty quickly. Um, mm -hmm. not a lot, but some, it was funny because, you know, I, I bought this business at the end of 2019, I got in there and things were okay. Uh, and then suddenly COVID hits and the world turns upside down. Um, and that brought a, a new set of opportunities and challenges um, because we had a lot of real estate 
that suddenly didn't want to pay their bills because they weren't getting paid. And we had you know, everything that everyone can imagine going through COVID with the real estate services business, good and bad, it all happened. Um, but that's when, you know, really the industrial client base said, oh, we, we got to go. You know, uh, and um, that, that was where we saw a lot of success there pretty quickly. Well, I, I do want to give a minute or two to COVID directly. Let's sure. put a pin in that. Just the, I wonder if there's a framework to think about debt here because you, you didn't take an SBA loan as you, yep. as we know. So, so just to, for the audience recall, the terms were basically the, you, the kind of personally assuming all this debt, mm-hmm. a little bit, you know, you know, you stroked a small check mm-hmm. and that was it. I wrote, um, I, I wrote another check of my, of my personal savings into the business. So I did put oh, some, did. Wor- some working capital into the business. Can uh, you share how much y- you were all in for your own cash? Uh, six figures plus. Okay. okay. Um, Low six figures or high six figures? Uh, it grew. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, everything, you know, essentially I wasn't taking earnings out of the business while I owned it. Uh, I, I was reinvesting everything into working capital. So certainly, you know, as throughout the ownership of the business, uh, you know, it was, you know, probably even high, uh, high six figures and seven. And um, high six figures and seven, meaning cash you put into the business and your own not paying yourself. Yeah, your return, own, return of earnings, right? Like the business yeah, was right. profitable, but I wasn't taking that money out. I was yeah. plowing that money back into working capital because we, you know, there was no working capital when I bought the business. Okay. Okay. Good point. Clarification. But this, this thing about the loan. So you don't have an SBA loan, but yeah. you do assume all these debts. So in some ways... You know, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm probably doing an apples to oranges comparison here, but it's kind of like, you know, you, you got this company, you know, with all this loan on top of it. And most of my listeners will get a business with all this loan on top of it, but it's an yeah. SBA loan. In your case, yeah. it was just loans to, so I wonder if there's anything to any, I don't know, any way, anything to say about that or, or the loan, maybe here's the question, the loans that the business owed that you were personally assuming Mm-hmm. Do you feel, do you have a sense of those, were those bigger or smaller than 90% of the enterprise value of the business, which is kind of to correlate it to an SBA loan? Right. Um, you know, I guess it depends. It was essentially the value of our business per the transaction was the assumed debts. Mm-hmm. In my calculus uh, of what I thought I could salvage the business for, yeah, best case scenario, it was probably in the 70% range, but there was maybe some haircut on what that value was, and it may have been 100%. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, you know, the, I guess the difference in the mechanics of payment was, you know, I, I fronted as, as much cash as I could personally, plus my new line of credit to give us wiggle room on as, as us get, getting going, and then just kept, kept money in the business. Um, and you know, I, like I, have, you know, I've, I was in a fortunate position that I had money to invest mm-hmm. and have that backstop of, oh, we didn't have enough money to make some debt service. Okay, I'm going to write that extra check into the business and you know, sign personally for the line of credit to get the wiggle room. Uh, and I think that's you, you got to be prepared with what your dry powder looks like in these situations. Just with any search business, of you going in and you know, working capital is great, but how liquid is are, are the receivables that you're coming with the business for, you know, you buy a business, payroll still do. If the receivables may have not come in yet, you may have gotten a million dollars of working capital, but that might be all receivables that you're don't have cash to pay, pay real payables for. Mm-hmm. 
And for the listener, Ben, who say might not have might not have dry powder, mm. do you think that you if you didn't have your own kind of your own balance sheet to lean on, do you feel like you could have raised a little money once you were in there as the new owner operator? Absolutely. From to yeah. to have given yourself some this working capital, yeah, given the I business think, the working capital. Yeah, I think given the dynamics of the market, this was a really attractive target because of right, like I said, it, it had some reasonable size. It the contracts were substantial, and so there was some real value there. Um, you know, I was fortunate, like I said, to put the the extra working capital in myself, which ended up being significant. Uh, <laughs> but given the kind of the market of what the business was going to be worth. Yeah. Even, you know, I think you could find some type of a search investor. It wasn't going to be a traditional search raise, but you could find some investor that would have signed up for that as well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So much more to go, Ben. Uh, <laughs> this, this is great though. I mean, this is just such a, what a story. Okay. So you've, you've hit on a few minutes ago, how, you know, you, you got in there and you were like, you know, tighten up bidding, Tighten yeah. up, you know, the hours, all the kind of recording and the hours that are charged under the contract versus not. And and how a lot of this was communicating to the existing team, you know, that we're going to do things differently. Mm -hmm. And so in a turnaround, the, you know, the start among many stark differences is, is, is differences between a turnaround and not is you need to change things quickly. Whereas in, in, a, in a, you know, for, for many searchers, it's don't change anything for six months. Don't touch yeah. anything. Just be a yeah, student yeah. of the business, blah, blah, blah. Um, so you're, but you came in there and you needed, you needed to manage change real quick. What, what did you learn from that? And, and maybe tie this into your kind of uh, chemistry that you have with kind of a blue collar workforce that you, that you going all the way back to your first jobs. Yeah. So tie all of that together. Did, did you get, were people, was the team receptive to the new sheriff or, and the new rules or what? Yeah. I, I would say the team was excited that there was something that had happened. Yeah. That I was here, that the business was going to continue. And, you know, they, they didn't know that I, you know, had some personable fun, funds behind me, but nothing else of like, <laughs> I was, um, you know, it wasn't like there was a private equity firm with deep pockets. Suddenly it was, you know, I was going to put everything I had in it, but, uh, you know, I, I was maxed out pretty quickly and they were excited to know that there was going to be some more support for them. Because like I said, the, the customer's main complaint was, you know, the back office is kind of a mess stemming from, you know, the owner being all over the place. So we had a great uh, crew in the back office that suddenly had me, like you said, as the sheriff to say, no, Bob, this is how it's going to happen. And let the people in the back office do their thing and be organized, which they were very quickly. And, and they were throughout. Um, and, and the team, I think, responded to that as well of, hey, there's some structure here. There's some nominal rules and support for us to follow the rules rather than being constantly overruled by the guy who says, no, the customer is always right. The customer is always right. Which is, you know, I appreciate and respect that mindset, but it not to the point that it's going to drive you out of business. Um, <laughs> no. There's got to be some, some balance there. And, yeah. and so the team in that aspect was very happy to have me around that I was there every day trying to figure out, okay, what are, what are the problems? How are we going to make this work? you know, who's a pain in the ass? How can I help you deal with them? You know, who are we going to together say that we're done with? Who are we going to go go make it work with? And I think that aspect of it was exciting to them. I don't know how terrified they were, right? Because again, it was just me. Uh, 
of what they thought was going to happen. Certainly some of them thought that the company was going to go under, um, but enough of them stuck with it and uh, made it work that we ended up being very successful. Great. Bringing order to, to chaos, and yeah. a, a, wel a welcome order, I guess. Yeah. And just trying to be transparent of, hey, guys, like these are our baselines of why we need to do different things such that we stay in business such yeah. that we get paid for the work that you do so that we can pay you for the work that you do. Um, that, that message was pretty clear. And, and that, you know, I think is pretty universal in these small businesses of the individual workers generally want stability and support and some incentive. And if you can give them that, you know, you'll find a, generally a, a good worker will stick around and be pretty happy because that's, you know, a good environment for them. Yeah. If you're going to give them, you know, no incentives and unclear assignments and, and you move them around all the place, like that's just not a, an environment that's going to attract anyone. Well, I, I, <laughs> I guess also change management is easier when it's clear the company's on the brink. And like, if we don't change Absolutely. something now, Absolutely. they're like, right. nobody's going to have a job it's, or, it, you know. It, yeah. And I think that was, it was different in the oil field because I was asking people to do di things differently. So I had to really, I had to explain like, this is why we want you to do this and how we can make better decisions, blah, blah, blah. In, in a turnaround, yeah, it's this business is on the brink of bankruptcy. We have to do this diff differently if we want to survive. Yeah. And everyone, yeah. I mean, everyone knew that things were not going well. So it was pretty, you know, it was not a shock to them. You know, I don't know who knew how close things were to what, but it was very obvious of, oh yeah, like we, we want to do things differently. That is, everyone is on board for things being different. Well, uh, when thinking about motivations, I, I always love the framework of carrot and stick. And yeah. stick is people losing their job because the business goes out of goes out of business. Carrot is incentives, incentivizing mm -hmm. people, you know, having them run towards something rather than run away from something. And you've mentioned that word now a number of times, but I don't think we've given it its due. What? How did you reorient? Or, or institute new incentives? Because because yeah. I know this is now part of your you know, yeah, key playbook. For, for the elevator business, it was pretty straightforward. It was much more stick because it, <laughs> <Okay>. was, <laughs> it, it was like, we got to make this thing work of like, I want this business to survive and, and have this be a good place to work and treating people well. And, uh, you know, eventually we got into some financial incentives, but the large majority of that story is around, we want you to, we like finding good people and, you've got a good community and a good thing going here. Let's keep it, keep it alive in a, in the things that I'm doing now with a solid small business that things are good. It's much so more so how do you attract and retain talent? And that becomes incentive programs where what are you can, what can you control? What are the metrics that we're giving you that we're going to judge you on and go do a good job and, and finding good crews that way. And, and I see that in best in class, small businesses. Let's uh, start getting toward the end of, of your adventure with Hadfield. Sure. Give us give us a minute on on COVID. What happened during COVID? You, you've yeah. already said some of it, but round yeah. It so you know, like I said, we kind of got in there and uh, had stabilized the business. I remember we had that first quarter. Where I was like, we have money is coming in. It's going to be okay. <laughs> And, wow. then COVID and how long did that take from your ownership? When you about, ownership? It was about a quarter of that, that first quarter of, you know, maxing out the new credit line, me personally putting in everything I could of like what the first couple of weeks, especially like, oh my God, what did I buy? And what did I get myself into? 
And then, you know, the cash started coming in from the receivables and, you know, new billing procedures took place and we got rid of some just customers that were bleeding us dry. And then, you know, COVID hit and like, okay, what is, what is going on? And, and it really bifurcated. Ben, ben, sorry, let me interrupt you just before you get to COVID. Wait, yeah. I just want to understand how effectively this did or didn't happen. How long did it, it only took you a single quarter to stabilize the business? Yeah. Wow. Good I mean, show. I, maybe in retrospect, it wasn't that good. But what, I mean, again, that, that first quarter of putting every money we could into the business to stabilize thing helped. And maybe, you know, we could have maybe dragged that on, on longer. Um, getting rid of bad customers, right? You know, the business was already right size when I took over. So we didn't have to really fire anyone, um, institute new building practices. And, you know, we knew there was money coming in every month from these maintenance contracts. So that, that, uh, that, that was the great thing that I did not have to deal with in terms of this being a turnaround revenue was coming in. Yeah. And I saw that and you could see that in the cat revenue is coming in. The costs were out of control. The big blow up had already happened with a bad customer that was over. That was all yeah. written off. There yeah. were no, the ongoing costs of that were the debt that, you know, we kind of refinanced. And so that was the aspect of, you know, the turnaround that um, was able to happen relatively quickly was the revenue was coming in, stop doing stupid things that are burning money and, you know, make sure we're billing for th everything that we can. Those were changes that you can make relatively quickly and it mm -hmm. doesn't take that long to see the results from. Mm -hmm. So take us then, so you've, you've stabilized in, in a quarter, uh, yeah. pretty, pretty dramatic, uh, then, but then, of course, uh, our friend COVID hit. So, what happens during COVID? Yeah. So, first of all, it was a question of: Is this going to be how terrible is this going to be for the business? Because we had customers left and right saying, "Don't come." Some of them said, "Don't come. We're not going to pay you for your don't come cost. service our elevator." Exactly. Just, don't come service mm -hmm. our elevator. Um, but most people said, "Like, oh, we, you still got to come," and they understood that. Uh, even if that was a little bit touchy, uh, well, we're not going to pay you because no one's paying rent. <laughs> Um, and then we had some customers, <laughs> right? Like, fortunately that wasn't too bad. And we were able to, you know, just not incur the costs of going somewhere if, if we were able to work something out. And then we had some customers that said, this is great. There's no one in the building. This is the best time to work on the elevator. Uh, and you know, that took a while to get there. And, but you know, we certainly dealt with the restrictions of, you know, everybody wanted to have everyone six feet away can't do that in an elevator shaft. Uh, okay. So some places we couldn't work. Um, some customers were completely closed. The, the doors were just locked, no communication for a while. Um, but then the segment of our business that did start going well was the industrial client base. Was, yeah. They were still working. We, had the, we made it work with COVID in terms of whatever restrictions they had around us and, and, and they needed to keep things running. And so that was, that was the segment of growth. Um, that first started to go through COVID, you know, after a couple of months, things stabilized a little bit, but we, we had a lot of guys off work for a couple of months, um, and, you know, giving them the support that we could, but eventually the, that, the industrial client base started, started, um, getting, getting involved and, uh, the state government, we want a couple of big state government contracts. And student housing was an area of development as well that I think it, there was just some bottlenecks that broke through pretty quickly. And so we ended up growing by, by the end of COVID, which is the, you know, the kind of the end of when we decided to sell the business, we were growing aggressively. And hmm. that kind of leads into 
the reason that I decided to sell the business is I had seen the guy before me grow too big and go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And so as we had all this pent up demand coming out of COVID, we started growing rapidly and me not being a lifelong elevator guy nor a GC, we started, you know, having big negotiations with big sophisticated customers where the team was excited about doing the work. Uh, and I was going to run out of the ability to really fund the business. And I knew that the margin for error was large. Uh, or, you know, my margin was slow because the op, there could be a lot of things that could go wrong on these big projects. That's where people lose, you know, the fixed price contract. And that's where they had gotten screwed before. Uh, and I didn't want the same thing to happen to me. And, and fortunately, you know, the guys, uh, Bob and Rick understood that they said, Hey, we've done well. Um, they were happy to have, you know, what it ended up being a private equity platform come in that was able to support them on, you know, far beyond anything that I was able to, to give to them in terms of go get any work you want and we're here to support it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that, that was kind of the calculus of COVID sucked. And then, you know, we were, got, got support from all the various, you know, programs, kept, kept eventually, you know, we were able to keep most of the people working, um, bottleneck of business breaks and there's a big backlog that comes to you. How much can we handle? Where does this team want to go? This business is going to go beyond me. I'll take my check and be happy and go on to the next thing. And how much had you grown it? We had doubled the size of the business and, you know, we were on a run rate to double the size of the business in two years. Doubling the side of the uh, of the business, so it was so, upper seven figures to remind the audience in revenue. I uh, let's call that eight million. That's my number. You're neither confirming nor denying, and so you know you get to you get to whatever. Call it 15, 16, 17 million, or you're on track to get there yeah, pretty quickly. Yeah, we were we, we were run rating towards you know uh, kind of the, the middle of that range, uh, uh, and. I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> you know, we were, yeah. we were, and, you know, and by the way, stabilized. You're actually now a real a, a profitable, yeah, growing well, profitably. Again, that, it's stabilized, but uh, working capital is sucking everything. And uh, it's not like I'm, you know, the business is doing well. It's not like I'm printing money for myself at that point. Um, so I have everything that I, you know, have tied up in this business. I'm like, we can have a life-changing outcome. <laughs> Let's take yeah. it. Yeah. And on this point about, you know, the opportunity to do big construction jobs. So one thing I haven't mm -hmm. asked is because I, I kind of saw Hadfield as a elevator servicing business, but it's also mm -hmm. got this big construction component. I mean, that yeah. was the big, the big the issue that it got into that started the story. Yeah. How, how give us a minute on elevator businesses and how is it, is it what the split is like on construction and maintenance? Yeah. So yeah. Talk to that. Talk to so us about that. Service maintenance and repair was about half the business. Mm -hmm. And then, modernization construction was the other half small independents kind of stay away from new construction that's where the big oems go in really low to get the installation with a big service contract on the back end where they make their money that's how mm -hmm. the industry develops the dynamics that it does of you know we'll give it we'll give you the equipment at a very low price and then we're going to make it up on service which results in everyone hating their elevator company because they're just taking advantage of them on the service and how we can be lower cost because we don't have to make up the money from giving them the new construction package, right? The we lost just have leader to of new construction. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so we typically don't, do, you know, wouldn't compete on new construction occasionally. 
where we would compete is, hey, you've got a 50-year-old building with a 50-year-old elevator. We're going to rip out the elevator and put a new one in. It's not mm-hmm. as cookie cutter as new construction. So that's called modernization. And those end up being big dollar jobs. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we were being very competitive coming out of COVID is you know, real estate, people that were putting money into real estate. Um, there was a lot of that. And so those numbers ended up going up and up and up. But that's where you get into, you know, we're part of, um, you know, tens or hundreds of million dollar construction jobs. And we've got, you know, a great elevator contract to do, you know, big rehab. But you're starting to talk about liquidated damages of thousands of dollars a day. Uh, if something goes wrong and, and people that are, you know, you're waiting on the other trades, it gets a, a lot more complicated uh, and a lot more pressure. You can make a lot of money doing that, but you can also lose a lot of money doing that. Yeah. And I certainly yeah. had the team that was excited about doing the work and doing a good job with the work. Uh, I wasn't overly particularly confident going into negotiating with the billion dollar GC that, you know, we needed our money and we needed it now when they said, no, you did this wrong. Here's throw the book at you. Mm-hmm. We dealt with generally good, um, you know, good counterparties, but that was the for me the big eye opener of hey, this I see where Bob got himself in trouble. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take the win. And Ben, could you have made a strategic decision to not go after? not only not new construction, what was the other one you called? Modernization. Modernization. Just leave all of those on the table. And like, I'm thinking of like pool service. You can either start building new pools or you can just say, I'm never going to build a pool. I'm only going to be in the pool servicing business. Could you have only been in the elevator servicing business? You need to to do the modernizations to be a a relevant player because in your portfolio of maintenance, there's going to, that's going to spit off some major projects each year. And if you don't do that, someone else is going to take the maintenance. Hmm. So you need the capabilities uh, in-house to be a kind of full service player to have any sort of business growth. Uh, and so that was, you know, that's how you, and that's another way to grow your business. As you take new modernizations, you get the maintenance contracts associated for years. And so that it was a key part of the business that you can't, you could not be a pure maintenance player and be relevant. Mm-hmm. And to close us out on, actually, I should ask one other question. Um, Anything, anything to share with the audience about working with a union shop or working with a union and in a union shop? It was, I was very concerned about it. Uh, you know, going in, it generally not something that's done. What I got comfortable with was again, the entire industry for the large part was unionized. So the union was much more concerned with the larger players, the Otis Tiss and Schindler Cones of the world more so than the small players. And in fact, they were supportive of the small players because we, in some senses, kept the large companies honest in terms of providing service and providing, you know, not overworking the guys. And that was the key dynamic that got me comfortable with the the union labor force was that the union itself was generally supportive of my business existing in the face of the bigger problems that they had to deal with elsewhere we generally had an okay relationship with the union. It wasn't perfect, but you know, they were supportive uh, and we were a reasonable player for them. Other industries do not have that dynamic. And um, I would be very wary of getting into a union situation where the union's only concern is my business. I do not want that situation. So good to be in an industry where the union's attention is going to be on some, some really big players. 
Yeah. And you're going to get less of their attention and you can even serve as a kind of a counterweight to some of the exactly. bad practices of the big boys. Exactly. Absolutely. And that, and that, okay. that was the dynamic of they wanted us to exist. They wanted us to do well because that kept pressure on the much bigger people in the industry. How did Bob react? You already touched on it, but give us more about how he reacted when you decided to sell to private equity. Uh, he was nervous, but he understood. You know, he, he was able to, he was going to make some money as well, which he had not before. Um, and, you know, for me, it was important to find a private equity firm and a platform that was going to be supportive of the team that I was going to leave behind and, and certainly found that in Berkshire Partners in three phase. You know, they, their thesis was finding these independent companies and building up a larger independent. And it's very hard to do, but you know, th I know they've, they've been working on it for a couple of years now and put together a good group of companies and, and, you know, supporting management and, and leaving them in place as much as possible, um, where, where appropriate, you know, Bob, Bob and Rick are still very involved in the, the offices in Pittsburgh and Harrisburg and, and three phase has been a great partner to them of like, go, you know, you want to, you want to grow more, like we're here for you. They have more expertise than I could have ever offered. Um, you know, of course, it's never all butterflies and rainbows selling to a private equity platform, but that was the key dynamic that uh, has largely played out as true was I found a platform that wanted the offices that we had to remain standalone and be supportive of them and be supportive of the teams in place. To close us out on the Hadfield uh, part of your story, would you recommend, Ben, that to listeners, if they come across an elevator service business, is this an industry... Uh, that that a searcher should get excited about. I know that's a yeah, simplistic question, but absolutely. Any I think big the, picture takeaway. The, the industry is really interesting. I think you know, obviously the the dynamic that I found was, hey, this is a messy business in a really good industry, and I think that that can be very true and of a lot of different things, and look a lot of a lot of different ways that you know, buying a business that was as messy as Hadfield. Uh, you've either got to have, you know, your personal dry powder or find someone who does to have the stability to some degree and being willing to sign on the dotted line uh, and and do the calculus of how much is what's there really worth versus what am I signing for? Um, but knowing that, hey, there are, there are buyers of this business mm -hmm. if things don't go well or if things do go well. I think mm -hmm. that calculus is important. Certainly, I found that in the elevator industry. You know, unique niche business uh, ends up being a big industry because it is so expensive and with a lot of great dynamics for the search search world. Okay, Ben, what do you do after this? Uh, after this exit, you know, and the the whole kind of had from sure. searching, networking in Pittsburgh to your exit is probably less than three years total. Yeah. 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 I, I was, you know, like I said, I was very fortunate to find something and have it work out so well relatively quickly. I, I searched for under and got a deal done in under a year, owned the business for two years, uh, almost yeah. exactly. Uh, and then I was like, oh, this is, this turnaround thing is great. And I'm a turnaround artist yeah, now. Exactly. Watch out world. <laughs> uh, and the second one went horribly. Uh, no, it's, it's, I, I was, uh, got involved in another business that, you know, I'm still involved in and, uh, it was a VC-backed technology business where they were ready for some new blood. And so I came in and invested and, and um, you know, things have not gone as well as Hadfield, certainly. You know, still trying to get to a good outcome there because we have a great technology, but different dynamics, different set of distress. 
Yeah, this is one where the revenue was not there and we were trying to build it up and it, it's been a much, much harder slog than a turnaround where there's revenue there because you can control costs. It's harder to control revenue. Um, and in conjunction with that, I've started searching again and uh, gone back to traditional, hey, let's find something normal, small business type that is profitable and well run. And uh, I'm now in a disaster restoration business here in Pittsburgh that I just bought earlier this year. And, um, you know, very much bread and butter search, search, you know, profitable business, good industry, get an SBA loan, get a seller note and, you know, have the equity myself now to write the check. And I'm enjoying this so far. So, and you're sitting in that, uh, that business right now, disaster restoration business. Yep. As we as we went back and forth to set up our interview and have our pre calls, that deal was coming together. It, since, yep. since we talked to, before the holiday, it has come together. Yep. And um, and but it's a healthy business. It it's is. not a turnaround. Yep. Uh, so what you know when I when I think about your your experience with Hadfield and then your experience with this techish company that was a turnaround that didn't go well. Um, you know, that tech-ish company doesn't feel like, you know, there's probably a lot about that business that's that was different than, you know, kind of a blue-collar yeah. traditional business, right? So, I, so I'm, I'm not sure that you, that you should conclude that you don't know what to do in a turnaround. So, so, yeah. I, so uh, why go for a healthy business and not another? Like, the learning coming out of trying to do the tech business turnaround might have been... Sure. Oh, turnarounds only work where there's good revenue. So I should yeah. go do a turnaround in a traditional business, but sure. not necessarily that I'll never do a turnaround again. Anyway. Yeah, and my conclusion was not that I would never do a turnaround. And I think there are still aspects of the the technology business that will you know can be successful, and there is good technology there for the right player that we're working on. Um, it's just what I found. You know, I went back okay. to the hey, I'm in Pittsburgh. I want to stay in Pittsburgh. What can I find? And I was very fortunate to find. Hey, this is a great, great industry. Disaster restoration, you know, insurance pays for reconstruction after you know fire or smoke or water damage. Those types of things. Good business. Got to know the seller really well. Again, um, you know, it was it was a local local um, advisor that I knew. I was like, hey, the, you know, this similarly has some of those best in class dynamics that I had talked about of. They're really organized on a bidding front. That's how you make money in this business and in, in insurance restoration is, is you got to document everything you want to get paid for. And then they mm -hmm. do a good job with incent incentives of, hey, this is how much you're given for a job. You know, here's here's your incentive to, to beat that. Um, and like we talked about, you know, I've looked at another business here locally. That's another services business, different uh, industry, but has those dynamics as well that I'm trying to buy and hopefully we'll have um that actually maybe by the time this is released but you know very detail oriented on bidding um another good uh services business where demand i'm very confident is going to stick around and they do a great job giving incentives to every level of employee of here's here's what we can do um if you exceed it you make more money pretty straightforward so so this kind of two-pronged uh, these two levers, you know, bidding really meticulous, accurate bidding processes on the one hand mm -hmm. and good incentives up and down the organization on the other are kind of the Ben Rizzo, you know, pillars here of, of these types of businesses, making them yeah, successful. I think, I think they set up 
together nicely because you can't give good incentives if you don't have a good cost structure. You 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 know you don't understand what your own drivers of profitability are, um, and by if you do understand what your drivers of profitability are, then it's pretty easy to on the other end tell people to go do more of them. In situations where you know the person doing the work can control some of that, which in services business, they usually can control how fast can we do something? Can we do a good job? Can we avoid having to come back to you know do it again? Those types of things are in you know individual laborers control of how hard are they working on, you know, is it worth the extra 10 minutes to get it done now? Or do we want to come back tomorrow? Those types of things that are in their control, um, you know, they should make more money to make the decision. You want them to make more money when they're making the decisions that make you money and doing the work that makes you more money too. Mm-hmm. Ben, back to, or kind of the concept of a turnaround distressed business, or even maybe not fully distressed as bad as Hadfield was, but less, yeah. lesser of lesser quality. You know, one of the, the dynamics in our world is that, you know, there, it's, it's a growing world, more and more attention on ETA, more and more mm-hmm. ser- searchers out there. So, you know, more and more competition for good businesses. And so there's bound to be some, uh, first of all, we already know there's no such thing as, as a perfect business anyway. So, so the searcher goes through that awakening over the course yeah. of their search where they lower their standards just in their own kind of in the micro world of their own search. But at a macro level, um, as there's more competition for deals, perhaps the quality uh, expectations need to be relaxed further and you might, your story might be an interesting model for that. Do you have anything to respond to all that? I would say to some degree, yes. And I think two big dynamics. One, the creep of private equity down market is a huge um, competitive shake to the search world. You know, everything that I bid on now, I'm bidding against private equity. And I think years ago, that would have not been the case. It's just easier to be connected to more private equity firms and more private equity firms look at more deals and there are more platforms that they'll go down to a million or half a million dollar EBITDA business sometimes in the right situation. So that exists. So that that drives multiples up as a search. You got to figure out what to do. The other aspect is uh, you've got baby boomers that are going to that own a ton of these businesses that are going to have to retire at some point. Many of them. So sure, some of them are going to say, hey, I had my best year ever. I'm going to hire an investment maker and I'm going to run this great process. Uh, Those are great opportunities. Um, But many of them are in the middle of an okay year and have some sort of personal issue, Uh, you know, a death in the family or a personal health issue or a divorce, any of those things that are suddenly a forcing factor of, oh, I got to buy this. I got to sell this business or something needs to happen. I think that's the dynamic of, you know, broad mechanics around what I did in terms of a turnaround where it was a business where something needed to happen. It happened to work for me that I got comfortable with the amount of debt load and what I thought the value was there. And I had some personal money that I could put in to give us a little bit of buffer and renegotiated with all the different levers of, I can make that work. I think there are going to be tons of businesses where something needs to happen. It's going to look different in every case but the businesses are going to need to transact to survive in many cases because you've got an owner who falls ill, who's ready to you know, move to Florida, who's something, some sort of a forcing factor as the baby boomers age are going to get more drastic. And I think that's where being positioned in 
the networks of accountants, lawyers, advisors in the know who can suddenly say, hey, oh, you know, I'm drafting this legal document for your divorce or, you know, or, you know here kids like, you know, you, your family member passed away and they've got this business. What are we going to do with it? Oh, I know someone who might be able to come in in this situation. Very messy situations and different dynamics, but there are going to be a lot of businesses that are tied up in these because baby boomers, many of them are just holding on to businesses. Um, you know, the business is good. Hold on to it. Why, you know, why sell? I don't know what I'd do. I like, I like what I'm doing. That's great. You got to time the transaction perfectly or be at risk of the situation where there's a forced sale. And I think that's where searchers, um, it's hard to go out with the strategy of, oh, I'm going to find a turnaround because you don't know what that looks like. You don't know what that is in what industry, but broadening your horizons as you're talking to advisors and the community of what you're looking to get into, um, making sure that it doesn't have to be a perfect million dollar EBITDA business where it's a sale. Uh, the things that you can deal with can give you an, an opportunity. Again, when it's an owner operator, you're going to go in and, and run the business. I think that aspect of what I did should be interesting to a lot of people um, because it is, you can replicate it by broadening your search cri criteria and you're not forced into anything. Great note. Uh, ben and and just to just to reinforce, I mean, we hit it on a lot of times, but really, how you know, fundamentally, you when you looked at this business, you were able to come up with kind of a an intrinsic value to it, and yeah. um, and and that there was more than the liabilities against the business, and so you know, so before we advocate people going and buying businesses that are not in a perfect shape, like you, you, you did a really tight, you had a really kind of tight mathematical model yes. underlying your decision and with with a lot of data on you know, yes it was a turnaround it was a business that was you know nominally losing money it had very valuable assets and yeah. the the purchase price which it could have been a levered SBA loan or whatever it is the purchase price i was fairly certain was less than the value of those assets yeah and i was going to be able to continue to increase the value of those assets by increasing the quality of the contracts in just the paper, continuing to increase prices going out. That was the key calculation that was very unique uh, and is not true in most turnaround situations where, oh, business is down. That's, that's really scary. Now, again, the, I guess the other aspect of turnarounds in general is purchase price can look like a lot of different things. You know, when, when you've got a messy situation, the expectation that you pay three times EBITDA, four times EBITDA goes out the window when it's a forced sale and there's very few options. It can be a seller note, right? You could walk into a situation that's messy, take a big seller note that's an earn out. And if it goes poorly a year later, you know, you haven't really lost anything. You've gotten a year of experience and you're back searching. Mm -hmm. That could be interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's, that's the other aspect of yeah, putting a lot of things at risk, a personal guarantee, personal assets into a messy situation, it, do so with a lot of caution. But in situations where your personal downside is minimal and the upside is, hey, things go well, you know, understand that the probability of that might not be high. 
mm-hmm. but that could be a very interesting situation. Certainly the second turnaround that I attempted and am still working on, you know, I knew what my, I, you know, I made an investment and I put my time in and, you know, we're still trying to get to a good outcome and I think we have a good technology, but I knew kind of where am I, I didn't write a personal guarantee for anything. And I knew if it, go, if it went really, really well, I'd make a ton of money. Okay, that was, that calculus was, was interesting to me. It's still interesting to me in the right situation. Ben, you, you touched on the, the business that you're now in and that you mm-hmm. are looking also at a second opportunity. Mm-hmm that you would buy. So if that comes to fruition, you'll now be the owner of two small businesses. I will be. I'm hoping so. And so that, that starts to smell like a Holtco. Yeah. Uh, is this something you set out to do? Absolutely not. Uh, when I started looking again, you know, I, I started networking around Pittsburgh and said, you know, I want to go back to a traditional search model where I find something small business that I can go to every day. And I just happened to find two where there were really good small businesses. There were services businesses, nothing that I had ever done, but kind of some similar technician driven businesses that were, um, you know, well organized and bidding, gave good incentives. I'm going to try and buy these both. I don't know if I'm going to get either of them, but, but, you know, I think hopefully I'll get one of them and maybe I'll get both. Uh, and I think I can pull it off. At various times during the process, you know, they each went to private equity firms at different, you know, for different reasons and then came back. And so, you know, I thought, okay, this worked out. I was going to get one. And then I very late and the pro- this process got the call from the other one and said, hey, you're back in. But do you want to be back in? I said, well, not, you know, under the right circumstances, yes. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's a different... Um, both businesses were set up for it. Both businesses have, um, you know, full-time general management, so to speak. And so it's not something where I'm going to suddenly try and replace a full-time owner operator immediately, uh, nor am I going to try and run two businesses myself. Those are the dynamics that, you know, led me to say, okay, one, I do want to try and buy both of these. And two, I think I have the kind of the capacity to do it. I've got good you know, teams in both that are running the businesses that I can support um, and, and continue to have these things be successful. And um, so what will your role be? I mean, just kind of light, light touch management or, I, don't know yet. I mean, I, I, let me, let me rephrase. Well, actually, let me re- rephrase one. Right. Cause you haven't even bought the second one. So you don't yeah. know, but I guess how much capacity do you have here? Could you, could you really do a really yeah. be say like, I like this hold co thing. I'm going to go buy five more. I have no plans to buy more after these two until I see the third one. I'm like, Oh, that's a great one. So we'll see. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, I'm still getting into obviously the first one and hopefully we'll get into the second one pretty soon of what are the opportunities for this business? How good is the team? I've been really pleased with the team so far. They've been great here at the restoration business of, yeah, that, you know, I can be supportive and, and, and help them, but you know, they don't need me every day. Um, and we'll see what, what, what the situation is with the other one as well. But, uh, yeah, I'm not looking to, if I add more then I probably have to add you know, do I have to hire someone to work for me? I think a lot of the hold code people have done some, some version of that. Um, but like I said, this was not a planned strategy for me. It was just a, there are two really good small businesses available for prices that I want to pay in the market where I want to be. 
I can pull this off and we'll see where it goes. With Hadfield, you did have to put in more capital. I mean, it wasn't just that smallish check at, at the moment of close, but you yeah. plowed mo- your own money into it and then the earnings back into it. So there was yep. there was some capital there, but getting the, you know, you sold after only two years into a, a market that was eager for such businesses. I'm assuming you had basically a life-changing outcome. Absolutely. And y- yes. Okay. Yeah. And you, <laughs> and you parlayed some six-figure number into some seven-figure number, I'll assume. Um, do you feel like now you can parlay that seven-figure number into an Eight figure and nine figure, I mean, like like how Hopefully, th- yeah. you're basically yeah. step you're doing step changes here in your in your personal net worth. How do you think about it? Yeah, so uh, you know I'm funding both of these acquisitions myself, or at least attempting to. Um, and I think that you know everyone knows the search model of you know if you build it and keep keep it going, you'll do really well. And I think hopefully that will be the case with these. I don't know the the ability to get to you know nine figures is a whole different ball game because what's my personal capacity to help these businesses grow? What are the management team's interests in growing beyond, uh, you know, doing anything I'm not planning to do buy and builds. Uh, I I don't, that that's not the playbook that I've ever run. So, you know, maybe someday I might do some add-ons, but that's not the imminent strategy. And that's certainly one of the categories uh, trade-offs that I've realized is thinking about, oh, I'm going to buy two things that are kind of different. Uh, all right, I'm going to be split more. What's the ability to really drive growth in either of them when I'm not going to be the one that's full-time there driving growth? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, uh, you know, the allure of the hold co is great of, you know, own these businesses, you know, don't run any of them, but that that comes with the trade-off of, you're tied to the team that is really invested in running them. And uh, at the small business level, like sure, sure, independent sponsors, private equity firms, you're plowing a lot more money in hiring a really professional management team that wants to do a buy and build versus for the search hold co type thing. It's really dependent on, you know, what, how much more money you want to plow in and what you want your role to be and who you want to hire and and that type of stuff. And I'm still figuring Mm -hmm. all that out, but I think it's you know two good small businesses that if they continue on the, the trajectory they're on um, and I can support them and not screw that up, I'll be very happy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the, but there is an interesting distinction there. I think that where you know in your first story with Hadfield, there was you were as in the weeds as you could possibly been, and it, yeah. it was a growth it was a growth story. I mean, you turning around and like an insolvent business, getting it solvent, and then growing it further. Yeah, and what that can do for your own balance sheet. And in, in, in your case, only two years. Yeah, it's pro, you're pro, unless you really go into these businesses with that same sort of growth orientation, you're probably not going to see as much of a m- multiplier on Absolutely. the money you have invested. I don't have plans to flip either of these businesses. I can't say I'll never sell, sell, but you know, as I do my basic model of, uh, you know, I, I make money by holding them and and having the money returned to me over time. It's unlike Hadfield where it's you know, put in, yeah, it ended up being into the seven figures of, you know, how much personal money that I had in there once you take everything out. Um, And then I made money when we sold. This is a model where, you know, these businesses should be cash flowing. Sure, I'll reinvest as as needed to support them and grow. Um, But it's a, you know, make money on distributions over years rather than build up to some some individual outcome, I think. 
that that that's yeah. uh, it remains to be seen. Well, if can can you give us a, a sense of what those distributions might be? In, in other words, what the revenue and and SDE or EBITDA of these two businesses uh, are? Uh, they're both great search businesses in the you know two to three million of EBITDA range, uh, and so that's you know if I can pull it off, there's some capex involved, so you know it would be a, a great start to a, a good hold co, I guess. Yeah, I mean so. You know, two, two, two to three million EBITDA each. So, and you S, you're going to do an SBA loan for each. Yes. Yeah, that's the other thing, right? The SBA loan rules have changed, so different NAICS code. You can do multiple SBA loans. Ah, okay. Well, if you if you get the second business and then you have two that are co combined, call it five million dollars of cash of earnings a year, and you pay down those SBA loans in ten years, you will have two. You know, you'll have a, a pair of businesses that are generating five million dollars a year. Uh, profitably that you'll own outright. How do you prefer people reach out to you if uh, if they want to ask a question? Uh, my website's easy, heartwoodpoint.com. And there's a form there you can fill it up. Yep.com. Yeah, we can throw that Great. in the show notes. It's, uh, yep. And there's a contact me form there. What a story, Ben Rizzo. Congratulations uh, on Hatfield and on your most recent acquisition. Good luck on getting that third one. Uh, thanks a lot for the transparency and for the time. Appreciate it, Will. Great to be with you.